Hello and welcome to the Pink Isle. My name is Henry Kathman, and joining me is acclaimed Barbie historian and scholar Emma Corey. None of that sentence is uh, actually true, but I'm happy to be here nonetheless. Well, Emma, I will say this. By the end of this episode, I think we can lend slightly more accuracy to that statement. Oh, boy. Yes, because we're going to be doing something a little bit different today for this episode. This has been a project that I've been kind of wanting to do for the Pink Isle for a long time as we've been doing this show. By the way, Emma, I believe if everything is right, this is going to be our 60th episode. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, hard to believe we've been at this for a bit. Pink Isle can now get an AARP card. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So usually on The Pink Isle, we've spent our time examining different TV shows and movies and other sort of media properties that are related to different fashion dolls as little tie-ins to them. And do not worry, listener, I do want to return to the world of Barbie soon with some of their old and new different media outputs. But I think as we continue on in our examination... I think it's important to spend a little bit of time understanding the history that led us to the point where we are at today. So this is going to be the start of what I hope can be a recurring series called Behind the Barbie, where I've been spending many, many days researching the complex history surrounding Barbie, Mattel, its creators, and all the other sort of stuff that surrounds it. And Emma, you're going to get to learn all about this forbidden knowledge. Oh boy, yippee. I can't wait. So before I get into my little spiel about the somewhat scandalous and salacious topic for today's episode, I want to ask Emma, what kind of knowledge do you have about Barbie's history? Um, well, uh, once upon a time, I did watch that one documentary on Hulu that kind of went into sort of like the origin story of how the Barbie doll was made, how, uh, who's the lady's name? Ruth Handler. Oh, uh, she uh, modified what was a, uh, a Russian doll, I believe. Not a Russian doll, but a German doll. A German and doll. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm glad you know of that because that is actually going to be the the main character of today's story. Emma, I want to tell you all about the story of Build Lily, which, as you mentioned, Ruth Handler, the creator of Barbie, there's a lot of history surrounding her, and honestly... I would be very much happy to do an entire episode about her and some of the complicated legacy that she kind of has with Mattel and, like, dolls and the whole, like, toy industry in general, which hopefully we can get to do that. But I think it's equally important to talk about Build Lily and some of the stuff that surrounds her. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm more than, than ready. I'm, give me that Barbie history. So... As you know, Emma, Barbie is what we consider a fashion doll. Obviously, humans have been playing with dolls for basically as long as humans have been doing human things. However, the fashion doll was a relatively recent trend. The concept of the fashion doll as we know it did not primarily start with Barbie. Though Barbie has had the most longevity of the dolls we are going to be talking about today, The first fashion dolls have been said to have originated in 16th century England as a way of sharing the latest fashion trends with other members of the nobility. Let me just show you like a little little picture that shows off a little example of that. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah. Yeah. So these sort of like dolls were primarily manufactured by different seamstresses as sort of like a little preview of like the sort of garments since, you know, it's kind of hard to like actually transport a full outfit to all these different places in Europe. And it was just a mostly a means of advertisement when it first started off. However, as time went on, 
different companies started to realize that they were quite popular with young girls because it was a thing where if you were some rich aristocratic lady and a salesperson dropped off like these fashion dolls, it was a thing where like, okay, I'm done seeing this dress. Here you go, young Rosa or whatever rich European name your kid had. You can play with this now. Eloise. Oh, Eloise. So that was the sort of thing where they first emerged. I, I would say, you know, I love like a mini version of anything. So I feel like this is really blow on those big like, 16th century minds, you know, like it's a big thing, but it's small. Yeah, yeah. There is a certain level of charm to it. However, the modern fashion doll as we know it actually started to emerge around the 1860s to the 1880s through the invention of what is called the bisque dolls, which were the creation of the French toy company uh, Jemu. And there were multiple of these different types of bisque dolls. They were primarily characterized as being made out of like a type of porcelain, and they were meant to represent old grown-up women intended for children of affluent families to play with in order to uh, show off the latest fashion and give them kind of a taste of adulthood through its fashion. And as a result, would be a very hotly desired product for a lot of affluent families in late 19th century Europe. And this theme of young girls being given like a sneak preview of adult womanhood through these dolls still continued. But even in America, Barbie can't even be considered the first fashion doll that was homegrown in the States. Before Barbie, there were the sissy dolls produced by the Alexander Doll Company, and they preceded Mattel's creation by a full four years when they released the doll to widespread popularity through 1955. Which, Emma, I don't know if you've ever heard of a sissy doll? Uh, I am not so sure. You've probably seen the Madame Alexander Doll Company's dolls, because these are the kind of dolls that are designed to be sort of resemble babies. They would have, like, kind of high-quality clothing. However, the sissy dolls, they showcased a number of similar elements. However, she had the distinction of having, back then, what was considered somewhat scandalous because she had very pronounced breasts and high-heeled shoes. The thing is, though, they still do kind of have, like, baby heads, though. Yeah, exactly. All throughout this time, pretty much all these fashion dolls were designed to resemble children, which kind of makes some of the vibes with the sissy dolls kind of creepy. And this is actually what helped to distinguish Barbie from other fashion dolls, and partially why I think she has helped to maintain a lot of the longevity that she continues to enjoy to this day. Yeah, because for the most part, Barbie just looks like a uh, quote-unquote regular woman, you know? Oh, yes. And honestly, we could also do an entire episode about Barbie's, let's say, complicated history with body image and a lot of the legitimate criticisms that could be directed towards Barbie's way through some of the images that we still kind of see her associated with today. But during this time period, Barbie, even from day one, has always been made to have a much more grown-up aspirational quality for children, as she was kind of seen as this sort of older, motherly, sisterly type of figure that girls can kind of project to, which is still kind of the basic ethos that governs the brand to this day. But... All of that is very intentional and thanks in large part to Barbie's creator, Ruth Handler. And when discussing the creation of Barbie and its history, two stories are commonly cited. Both versions do center Handler, who was the co-founder of Mattel, and both center on her experiences after she and her husband, co-founder of Mattel, Elliot Handler, saw a large amount of success after they began to manufacture plastic toys during World War II, as plastic was seen as a pretty cost-effective alternative to metal toys, which were currently being rationed and mostly directed towards the war effort. Now, I'm just imagining someone, like, confiscating one of those, like, metal toy barns. Like, you ever, like, like your parent ever have that or your grandparent have that? Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, that was actually a pretty common thing that people saw during World War II. It was kind of the whole ethos of like, 
donate your scrap metal type of thing, help Uncle Sam type of thing. You know, those kind of Molly American Girl vibes of like, uh, I want this tank. It's my favorite toy, but I think it's going to be better to put it towards real tanks. That kind of uh, patriotism of the 1940s that, uh, needless to say, I think has a pretty complicated legacy. Yeah. But going back to Handler, as mentioned, there are two stories that are commonly cited throughout Barbie's founding through the Handlers. In one version of the story, Handler often discusses watching her younger daughters playing with paper dolls and dressing them in elaborate outfits drawn and folded on and cut through paper. It was notable because she noticed that unlike the sort of standard historical fashion that most paper dolls were packaged with, Handler's daughter wanted to design and draw clothes that were similar to the kinds of clothes that her mom wore and would often use those paper dolls as a means of telling stories. Yeah, have you ever seen those uh, paper dolls before? I remember that was also something that my grandmother had. Like she had like a oh yeah thing of like the paper dolls where you'd like put the outfits on top of them and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you still somewhat see them. I think nowadays most of the time paper dolls are kind of treated as like a sort of novelty type of thing. I feel like those were kind of like the precursor to those like online dress-up flash games where it was just like like a blank featureless body that you would like put different outfits on you know that's actually a very good comparison because yeah i do think while we don't see like paper dolls around nowadays that similar sensibility of just wanting a basic template that you can just slide clothes onto i think that's something that a lot of kids find very appealing which we also can still see with the current prevalence of picrews being so common on like social media and stuff like that mm-hmm. one could even say it's a similar thing that made nfts appealing to certain types of people God, now i'm just imagining the the meme with the dominoes on one end it's like a paper dolls you would find in magazine and at the end you get like the bored ape or whatever oh yeah as you could probably imagine emma this first version of the origin story is one that Mattel tends to pretty commonly focus on. Handler cites this experience with the paper dolls as a large inspiration to use their new plastic manufacturing technology her husband was on the grounds floor of in order to create a more durable 3D doll, as she believed that it could give young girls an easier way to imagine an ideal future for themselves. As Mattel would describe it in their own Barbie History website, quote, Ruth Handler saw her daughter's toy choices were very limited. She would only play out being a mom or a caregiver, whereas her son had toys that allowed him to imagine himself as a firefighter, astronaut, doctor, and more. This inspired Ruth to create a doll that showed girls that they had choices, that they could be anything. End quote. And Handler's daughter's name, do you know this one, Emma? Uh, she was Barbara, right? Yes. Barbara, who, uh, Barbie gets her name from was named after Handler's daughter. And what do you think of this version of uh, Mattel's origin story? Feels feels a bit a bit sanitized, you know. I, I think yeah. there's some behind the scenes details that have yet to be disclosed, but it's a yeah. it's a good a good a good uh, a good paragraph you can put on like a website, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where, similar to, like, most history, especially with, like, the creation of different adventures, inventions such as this, I think there are some elements of truth to it. But as you said, this is probably a very sanitized element. Because the other version of this origin story that is cited paints a slightly less altruistic picture of the handlers, where... According to some sources, the creation of Barbie emerged when the handlers were taking a trip to Europe, and they saw a doll that was quite different from all of the other fashion dolls that they had seen. Unlike the other dolls, which had more cherubic, baby-like facial features and were generally more small, this doll looked like an adult woman with a hourglass figure, bright blonde hair, and a very modern dressing sensibility, which was enough to convince Elliot that there would be a market for such adult-coded fashion dolls in America. And while we could do a whole episode talking about Ruth Handler and her complicated legacy, for today, I want to focus on that European doll that many claim 
Had her legacy stolen by our beloved Barbara Barbie Roberts, Build Lily. Emma, just for clarity, how much do you know about Build Lily? All I'm know all I remember is that she was like the doll that they kind of based Barbie off. She was like she's this German doll. She kind of had like side eyes going on and she was wearing like a black mm-hmm. and white swimsuit. And that apparently mm-hmm. what they did in order to kind of like soften her down for like uh to be appropriate for his children's toy was apparently the original doll had like nipples and they had to like sand them off or something like that i remember that to a certain degree so there's some element of that but before we can get into the doll herself we first need to discuss the origins of lily First, uh, I want to discuss her original comic strip and the publication that she called home for eight years Emma, did you know about the comic strip Lily is from? Uh, I did not know, but I assume I will soon find out. Are you familiar with the newspaper publication Build? B-I-L-D? Nope. Well, most of our European listeners might be familiar with Build, but for those who aren't, Build is a broadsheet tabloid newspaper that has been running throughout Germany since its first publication on June 24th, 1952. Over the past 70 years, Bild has gone on to become the 16th largest news circulation worldwide and is currently Germany's most read news publication. A fact that some people find quite problematic due to the commonly conservative, inflammatory reporting that purportedly has a large influence on many people within the German government. It's also notable because Bild recently purchased the American publication of Politico, just last year, back in August of 2021. Oh. Yeah. So the newspaper describes itself as leaning quite conservative. And the closest equivalent that you might be familiar with, Emma, is a publication like the New York Post or The Sun in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great company that Build is sharing because just like those two publications, Build has spent its lifetime uh, often attacking left-leaning causes and most recently over the past two decades has spent a lot of its time attacking Angela Merkel's administration as well as different egalitarian movements seen throughout Europe. This is quite notable because a lot of these sort of recent attacks were helmed by the editor-in-chief, a guy by the name of Julian Reichelt, who was instrumental in maintaining Bild's commitment to being pro-US, pro-NATO, pro-Israel, pro-austerity, pro-capital, and anti-Russian and anti-Chinese. Yeah. However, it is notable that He was serving as their editor-in-chief for a number of years, but Reichelt was forced to resign from the publication in October of 2021 after multiple stories and a scathing investigative report on the part of the New York Times revealed a long history of sexual misconduct within the newspaper during his time as editor. Wow. Who could have seen this happening? Yeah, yeah. I know, a uh, big shocker here. Oh, God. Did you ever... Did you ever watch the uh, the Abercrombie and Fitch documentary they put on Netflix? No, do tell. I don't know. It just I, I'd recommend watching it because it does kind of show how these sort of like kind of like problematic companies that go through all these controversies. When you peel away the layers after a bit, it, there always seems to be like some kind of like high up sex pest at the end that was kind of responsible for a lot of it, you know. So. Oh yes. Oh, yes. And I mainly bring up Reichelt here because he is quite emblematic of a lot of the other stuff that has been seen throughout Bild's publication. While Reichelt is only a recent player within the 70-year history of the newspaper, this general ethos and conservative bent has always been present in the newspaper ever since its first publication in 1952, under the leadership of its founder and editor, Axel Springer, who... Most people often described him as Europe's Rupert Murdoch. Wow. Yeah. Also, Axel Springer. That doesn't sound like a real name. Believe me, this dude was definitely real and uh, a, a pretty big piece of shit, if I'm going to editorialize here. Mm-hmm. So during Springer's tenure as editor, he helped to define its conservative nationalist identity. 
Some of the interesting highlights of his career included from the 1950s all the way through the 80s, the newspaper would refer to the West German Democratic Republic as the Soviet occupation zone, which there are plenty of justifiable criticisms that could be leveled at the governments that lied behind the Iron Curtain. Much of Springer's criticism and attacks on this area was done from the perspective of criticizing its rejection of Western capitalist policies and didn't focus as much on the atrocities that were committed under places like the USSR. Yep, yep, that, that, that checks out. Yeah, it would spend many of its early years attacking leftist organizations, and one of the most notable examples of this occurred during 1966 through 1968, during the mass protests that saw organizations like the West German Students Movement protesting the German government for a lot of different reasons, but amongst them, the German government's failure to remove government officials that had clear ties with Nazi Germany, which these were the people Springer was attacking... Oh, boy. Yeah. There's so much more that I could go into Springer and build very problematic and toxic legacy. But all of this might leave you wondering, where the hell does Build Lily and this doll reside amongst all of this? To answer that, I want to quote a write-up that was done through the official Axel Springer website. The official Axel Springer website. Yes. So Axel Springer is the name of like the large media company that now owns Build. Okay. To hear about it from their perspective, quote, It all began with an empty page on page two of the very first edition of Build, released on June 24th, 1952. Although the printers urgently wanted to start working, a one-column announcement was lacking. The illustrator Reinhard Brutzein was commissioned to fill the gap post-haste, and it was how the readers came to see the slim, young blonde woman with the pert ponytail in the very first edition of Build the following day. In the first comic, she is sitting with a fortune teller and asking, can you please give me the name and the address of this rich and handsome man? And from there, Boothian wrote the name Lily above this caricature. They just had to put a little shapely blonde lady in there just to spice it up. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Kind of like the Daily Wire created like a popular comic character or something. Yeah. Most of uh, these comics do kind of uh, share a common element. See, I gotta say, I do like the little cat, though, that they got in that first one. The little. Oh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I think that, like, Boothine is a pretty talented illustrator, and obviously there's a lot of, like, complex baggage by the merit of, like, where Lily was published under originally. But from her first debut, Boothine's creation was an especially popular fixture amongst the newspaper for many of its early years, as many of the tabloids conservative male readers enjoyed reading about the daily exploits of Lily. To quote Barbie historian M.G. Lord, most readers saw her as, quote, a gold digger, exhibitionist, and floozy. I'd, to be labeled a, a, a floozy back in those days. I, th I think we should bring it back. Reclaim floozy. Reclaim floozy. It is a very fun word. But I think this does speak a little bit about, like, uh, some of the perceptions of women that a lot of Build's average readers might have had. It's kind of like, don't you hate her, but also don't you want her at the same time, you know? Indeed. Well, from its publication of 1952 to 1961, all of Vuthine's cartoons would basically consist of a picture of Lily talking usually dressed or undressed in some kind of manner so that they can show off her figure, and usually giving some sort of quippy remark to girlfriends, boyfriends, or her boss. And Emma, I've read a good number of these different comics. It's a little bit hard to find good proper English translations of a lot of these, since they didn't seem to put much stock in like actually uh, importing it into other places. But as you can see in some of the examples that I've shown, the best way I could describe an average Lily comic is Horny Family Circus. Yep, that sounds about right. Basically, uh, single panel strips that had some element of basic wordplay and jokes in order to, you know, show off the image that, oh, it's a comic and 
give the readers and the author some plausible deniability for their horniness, which is something that you still kind of see around today. And the thing is, I don't want to necessarily paint Boothane's work and Lily as anything necessarily like groundbreaking or unique, because I, I think Boothane is like a decently competent artist. However, this sort of comic was a pretty common practice throughout a lot of newspapers throughout Europe throughout the 1930s and the 1960s. And we even saw a number of comic strips in the United States that basically did the same thing. I mean, honestly, here to the, to the horny posting of today's uh, conservative comic artist, it's uh, definitely a, a breath of fresh air if you compare it to like a Ben Garrison or something like that, you know? That's true, because I suppose to give Boothine some credit, in pretty much all of these comics, Lily is depicted with a degree of autonomy and self-expression, where it does give an impression that she is at least having some element of liberation behind it, of, like, enjoying it to certain degrees. Though it's kind of that same breed of, like, Hugh Hefner type of liberated type of woman where it's like, oh, it's cool that you can be all liberated and stuff as long as it is done so that I can uh, mindlessly ogle you without being called a creep. See, it's like, uh, sure, I, I, I support feminism, but you still got to be sexy. Pretty much, yeah. And again, this was a very common practice in a lot of newspapers during this time period. Some of Lily's common contemporaries during this time period included uh, Dwayne Briars Hilda, which, have you ever heard of her? I don't think so. Dwayne Riders Hilda was notable for being this pretty popular pinup in the 50s and has actually received a bit of a resurgence because she's kind of considered, like, plus-sized by modern standards. And I see a lot of, like, sapphic folks kind of trying to reclaim elements of Hilda for themselves nowadays. And then other examples of like these sort of pinup comics could be seen in characters like Katie Keene, who was originally published in Archie Comics, or Aunt Fritzy through the Nancy Comics strips. Yeah, I mean, I think like when we sort of talk about like, you know, male gaze or whatever and these kind of things, you can kind of look at it two ways. Like on one hand, yeah, these are like, you know, just kind of the sexy picks what to make men horny mm -hmm. but you know in viewing it as like a woman you can kind of sort of see like the humanity and the character that's being portrayed and how like in a lot of these samples she always seems like kind of like self-aware about her body and her sexiness and like you know she's you know she's happy with who she is yeah and that there is that element of positivity yeah towards it I don't know. I think it, there's always going to be room to sort of like appreciate, you know, a woman's body and see that in a place of sort of love and worship and not as just something to be like consumed, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of that is from like giving kind of like personality to these characters where they get to be like sassy and fun and funny and not just like bodies to objectify. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. And like I said, very common as well. Have you ever heard of uh, Jusika? No. Uh, it's a Hungarian comic strip that features the titular Jusika, who, like sexual, however, most of it seems to be done with her wanting to be having more agency when it comes to how she shows herself off. Mm. I think your mileage is going to vary in terms of like how much you can enjoy, because it's a thing where as empowering some of these comics could be analyzed with. A lot of them are still done under this like assumption where things like sexual assault is treated as like this kind of like little funny joke gag. Yeah, because I know I know one of the the Lily comics you sent. It's like like some guy like taking like a camera while she's like changing. Yeah, exactly. And I do not want to like downplay that element because if you do look at a lot of these comics of the era, that is still a very prevalent element and one that I think sometimes folks tend to kind of ignore, especially when viewing these comic strips from that sort of lens of empowerment. But it is a very interesting legacy and a legacy that I think Lily is a part of. And it's a legacy that even becomes more complex when you think about the ways it kind of has had an impact on Barbie and fashion dolls in general. All this to say, uh, Lily... Not necessarily a 
unique fixture amongst the practice of pinup newspaper comic strips. However, from the 1950s onward, due to some pretty suspicious business dealings on the part of Axel Springer that we don't have time to really get into, but there's plenty of reading that I'm going to include in the description that goes into this, Bild would become the most popular newspaper throughout Germany, and Springer's empire ended up exploding over its first eight years of publication during Lily's lifespan. And this caused Lily and her creator, Bruthein, to become more popular than ever during this massive expansion. And this is where we finally get into the Build Lily doll. And I've been looking at Google Images. Say she does have a bit of a five head going on. That's something I've kind of noticed with the, the Build Lily doll. Yeah, she's got a really, really big forehead. Her hairline is like really pulled back. And a lot of that is pretty reflective of Boothine's drawing style when it comes to like her origins as like a caricature. Mm-hmm. It's especially interesting when you consider like her actual legacy of Barbie and some of the body image stuff that kind of like comes alongside that. The Build Lily dolls, when they were first released, were produced in two different sizes. First, you had the full 30 centimeter or one foot tall sizes or the 19 centimeter or 7.5 inches. They were primarily produced by a guy by the name of Max Weisbrot. It was originally launched on August 12th, 1955, and they managed to keep producing the dolls until 1964, with the dolls outlasting the Lily comic strips by a good couple of years. It was originally kind of done both as like this merchandising opportunity, but also as a way to advertise the build newspapers to general readers, which considering what we know about build as a newspaper and the kind of like ideology that stems, there's... It leaves an interesting taste in the mouth. Uh, I'm kind of like wondering how you can kind of connect things to like, hey, look at this this beautiful blonde woman. This is what the communists want to take away from you. So buy our paper. Yeah, I, I don't think it was necessarily going towards that direction, but I do think it is that element where Lily is kind of seen as this, oh, she's the ideal modern woman and something kind of aspirational. One thing to note is that these were pretty different dolls because they were designed to mirror this adult pinup comic strip for an adult newspaper. They were created with adults in mind, and that's reflected in her design where she would have molded eyelashes, pale skin, a painted face with side-glancing eyes, these high narrow eyebrows and red lips and with painted fingernails and pretty much always wearing like her ponytail and like this signature top curl on the head and would have things like shoes and earrings molded on. This might surprise you, but pretty much Lily, when she was first created as a doll, was basically an adult gag gift rather than something geared towards children. Yeah. So the dolls were originally sold for about 12 Deutschmarks for the tall dolls and 7.5 Deutschmarks for the small dolls. For context, that's about $6.31 in 1955 dollars, which is about $68 today. Jesus. It's like collector's item. Yeah. This is quite reflective of them being more marketed towards adults and being these kind of like gag gifts. You would primarily buy them at places like tobacco shops or news kiosks that sold things like small gift wares. Giving a Lily doll was kind of like the equivalent of like maybe giving like a dildo. <laughs> no, it's it's a thing where a German brochure for the 1950s states that Lily was, quote, always discreet and that her wardrobe made her, quote, the star of every bar. It was a thing where dudes would like buy these Lily dolls, put them on top of like the mantelpiece of like a bar or like your man cave and You even see a lot of, like, photos from this time period of, like, German Air Force officers having Lily dolls, like, in their cockpits of the planes. It's kind of like like the the 1950s version of, like, the sexy anime vinyl figures that, uh... Yeah! You yep. Actually, that's a very good point of comparison, because they were mostly just kind of salacious and something that you would kind of like discreetly buy. Now, hopefully hopefully she wasn't getting put into any jars back then. Emma, I don't think we can 
completely rule that out as a possibility, unfortunately. Oh, no. Well, because each plastic Lily doll carried a miniature copy of Build, like a fake little newspaper of Build, and was sold in a clear plastic tube, so... Oh, no. Kind of jarred. <laughs> yeah, kind of... She yeah, kind of jarred. jarred. Yeah, she was jarred. And the doll's feet uh, would be fitted into a stand with the base that was labeled Build Lily that formed at the bottom of the tube. And this packaging was originally designed by E. Martha Marr, the mother-in-law of one of the company owners for uh, O&M Hussar, who primarily oversaw the manufacturing with this. And it's a very interesting thing when you look at a number of like these sort of accessories and these outfits. I'm sending you over a copy of the fake build a newspaper that they had and very similar to the real build newspaper in german they would have like these little fake editorials and little the sort of like gossip and tabloid news that was pretty endemic to the newspaper and while i don't speak german if it's anything like the real build newspaper i know i can imagine it having like a certain kind of ideological bent i say i'm seeing the the build lily but what's this build baby that's also there uh, the build baby, that, that was a thing where, uh, I believe that's what they called the smaller models of them. So the thing with Lily is that usually these things were initially done as like these sort of gag gifts that dudes would give to each other and show off. However, as the 1960s go on, build and O&M Hauser tried to push towards advertising Lily as sort of a gift that young men can give to their girlfriends. Yeah, it's a uh, interesting choice. Most of these advertisements would involve a guy walking up to a house and having a bouquet of flowers, but inside that bouquet of flowers having a Lily doll with the captions often reading, quote, I found it so apt that you gave me a lily doll as a present. Now, I have a similarly suitable present for you. God. So... That's great advertising. Give your girlfriend a, a fashion doll and then she will have sex with you. Yep. It's a very interesting choice. And I really gotta wonder, like, how much of that appealed to, like, the girls of Germany during... uh the 1950s. I'm trying, I'm trying to think if, if someone gifted me just like a Barbie doll, like without like me asking for, I, I, I guess I can't really say how I would react to that. Maybe, maybe the result would be instantaneous horniness. Who knows? Like, so yeah, these dolls, they were very adult, very scandalous though. As they started manufacturing more, they ended up proving like somewhat popular Basically, they would end up making around 200 to 400 Deutschmarks every single month, which they ended up making about 2,100 in U.S. dollars a month in today's dollars. Oh, that that could have that could have funded a rent in like a like a downtown L.A. one bedroom apartment these days. Now, so, <laughs> oh, indeed they could. <laughs> yeah, they were making about like a thousand to two thousand a month in today's dollars. Uh. It, it was a thing where they ended up manufacturing a total of 130, uh, they ended up manufacturing 130,000 of these different dolls. And while they were producing them, the manufacturers ended up finding something quite surprising that these uh, horny dolls that dad got ended up being popular with children, which makes sense. It's a doll. Kids are going to want to play with dolls even. And I don't think a lot of young girls at the time kind of realized some of the creepy vibes that kind of surrounded it. Mm -hmm. But once they started reaching some levels of popularity, they ended up producing a number of different accessories for Lily, uh, including dollhouses. They produced different outfits. Or they, they had the Build Lily Dream House. Pretty much, yeah. One of my favorite little things that they used to advertise her involves her riding a little stuffed donkey toy, which I think you were able to buy with them as well. And they ended up having Martha Marr, who basically designed all of the different types of outfits for her, which included sports clothes, dresses, suits, 
And because of like the different outfits, this ended up making her even more popular with different girls. And there are two other notable accessories that I do want to note with Lily, because after a certain amount of time, they also ended up producing a special swing, which was designed specifically for the smaller 7.5 inch Lily dolls, where you could buy just like a little string with a stick on it. So that if you wanted to suspend Lily on your car's rear view window, you could just have her like swinging back and forth there. Say, I gotta say, I'm loving this little donkey. It's a very she good has, donkey. Um, I, I like how it's so small compared to her. Oh, yes. Where did a donkey come from is what I'm thinking. Like, I, I imagine it's some sort of pun on ass. Oh, oh. Yeah, 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 again. Still, still levels of horniness. And the other uh, major, like, accessory that they sold regarding Build Lily was the official Build Lily dashboard ornament, which was actually made in 1952 and was being produced around the same time as the Build Lily dolls. And it would basically be a more simple, like, plastic mold of her on a little spring and suction cup that you can, again, just, like, stick on top of your car. And then it would boing around. yeah. So, as you can imagine, Lily ended up gaining a good deal of popularity during this time period. From 1955 to 1958, it ended up becoming one of the more risingly popular children's toys throughout Europe. And you would see attempts to bring her into some other countries, including Italy and uh, Scandinavian countries. And once they started advertising Lily into other countries, they started more focusing her on being a uh, being more of a children's doll, kind of dropping the associations with the build newspaper and just simply calling her Lily. They would even try to sell some of the dolls in the 1950s in English-speaking countries where they would label her as Lily Marlene, which was named after a special song that was pretty popular. And one of the other things... During this time period, Lily ended up being so popular where in addition to the newspaper comics, they also had a hit song called The Lily Boogie. Oh my god. If you'll indulge me, Emma, I'm gonna just uh, play a little bit of that for you today. I can't wait. Wow, that's slap. It's a pretty good song, I gotta admit. Uh, it it kind of became like a sort of uh, standard for a lot of different kinds of like pop records where uh, the Lily Boogie was like primarily sung by a bunch of different jazz groups. Let me just give you a little translation of some of these lyrics. Lily, where you are seen, it's in the build. Lily, you lead them on like the other men. The men, the men, oh so nervous, scandalous Lily, to enchant many people. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yes. I bet it sounds better in German. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it definitely did. But uh, it was a thing where Lily ended up getting a lot of this sort of uh, popularity surrounding her. And her popularity even ended up getting so large that in 1958, they released a movie. Wait, there's there's a Build Lily cinematic universe as well? Yes. In 1958, they only released a single movie. It's Lily and Matschen aus der Gobstadt. I apologize for mispronunciation, which translates to Lily, a girl from the big city, which was a comedy mystery movie that was directed by Herman Leitner, who was mostly known for different documentary films from the time period. I gotta say, Emma, I spent so much time trying to find me a copy of this movie. Listener, if you could find me a copy of this, I would want to watch this. Oh, yeah. Is it like a live action? It is a live action movie. Yes. So this movie starred some relatively large actors from the time period, most notably Adrian Hoven, who 
some folks might recognize from World on a Wire or Castle of the Creeping Flesh. He was in a lot of popular German exploitation movies that kind of crossed over to the United States in the 1960s. But with this Lily movie, in order to find their star, there was actually a contest that was held through the Build newspaper where they put out this open call to try and find the perfect Lily who can basically uncover the character. And eventually, they ended up landing on Anne Simeoner, who was a Danish actress. If you've ever seen the uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode on Reptilicus, she was in that movie. Again, a lot of like German exploitation movies that kind of ended up crossing over, including such esteemed titles like Holiday in St. Tropez or Code 7, Victim 5, Breakfast in Bed, The Black Cobra. So, yeah, in all my research, I can't find any specific details about what the plot of this movie is, at least in English. Like I said, it's some sort of comedy mystery thing that seems to center on Lily solving a crime, maybe? It's hard to say. It's like kind of like one of those like they, those like lost films, like you know, it's hard to tell. Oh, I don't think it's lost. I just think that there hasn't been like any like official releases of it in the United States, and I don't think there's been really any attempt to like translate it into English or move it outside of Germany. Uh, yeah, that seems to be the general vibe of Lily, from what I can see, where it's this very niche sort of inside joke thing amongst a lot of German yeah. people. I guess if we have any German listeners out there that would uh, be willing to give us a hand in uncovering this uh, Build Lily lore, we'd really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I'd love to watch that. I like how in that poster, the kind of like silhouette they got of Build Lily in the background is kind of reminiscent of sort of like the Barbie logo silhouette that we have now. Oh, that's a not much of a coincidence as certain lawsuits later are going to start laying out with build lily's like rising popularity there was going to be some uh some copycats and i'm not talking about mattel in this one i'm talking about a couple of other different countries specifically hong kong these were cheaper versions of the build lily doll that were done when certain hong kong manufacturers purchased some of the original production molds and recreated them for their own factories a lot of these dolls were made to try and resemble the original Build Lily dolls, where they spent reportedly hours trying to get that look just right. And it's a pretty sought, well sought after collector's item amongst like doll fans throughout the world. And you can find plenty of collectors on eBay and Etsy trying to like show their collections off. With this uh, recreation, she's given the name Lily Lalka which was basically done as a uh, kind of a tribute to Lily, but making her more distinct. And if you were to look at these dolls, they pretty much look exactly the same. And there was also a girl named Muneca Sfej, which was sold primarily in Spain, who was designed to have darker skin and white earrings, and notably an articulated waist, which allowed her to like sit more easily, Although those dolls ended up being largely criticized by a lot of Spanish society because it was pretty conservative at the time. It's still dealing with like, you know, post Spanish Civil War fascist regime type of stuff. And they ended up not taking off very well. However, there's one other major feature that did set Lily apart from other dolls. And that was the PRYM snaps, which are commonly seen as an identifying feature in a lot of Lily's products, because unlike other fashion dolls during this time period, you would basically have entire outfits that were basically clothes where you had to slip them on over like the heads and you had to like make them kind of stretchy so you can fit them in the doll's proportions. Because of Lily's very distinct figure and the desire to make her clothes as form-fitting as possible, a lot of the manufacturers used PRYM snaps, which are basically like the sort of like button snaps you see on like blue jeans and stuff like that. They were made on special order for the Lily factory, and they were often painted to match the different types of outfits for the top snap. In a picture that I sent, you can see it on this one ballet dress where she has this really tight dress, and 
what they would do is they would overlay the snaps so that it could fit pretty soundly onto the body. And usually there was like a heart type design engraved into the top of the bottom snap, just as like a little sign of the branding, you know? Yeah, so this is uh, before they invented Velcro, right? Yes, Velcro would not come for another like couple of years. Okay, I will say, technically, Velcro was invented in the 1940s by George de Mistral after a trip in the Switzerland, but it ended up becoming more commonplace around 1955. I, I like how you just casually know, like, Velcro history. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing where Lily ended up having a lot of really distinct qualities to her. Very imitatable, but considering that this is a post-war Germany in 1955, the resources were somewhat limited compared to other places in the world, like, say, the United States. <laughs> in the year of March of 1959, the handlers, with the mother Ruth and the father Elliot and the two children, Barbara and Kenneth, were all taking a trip to Europe, where, as mentioned before, they ended up finding a special Build Lily doll while traveling around in Hamburg, and they ended up buying a doll for themselves. Now, Mattel nowadays will say that, oh, yes, Lily did serve as an inspiration, but they didn't copy the design. Rather, it was the main thing that helped Elliot Handler, who was previously skeptical about the concept of an adult-oriented fashion doll, realize that, oh, it was a concept that could be sold and going along with Ruth's idea. Though certain folks take a less charitable read of this, where there have been accusations of Mattel using the doll of Build Lily to create their own plastic molds that they could turn into the Barbie. It's pretty much impossible to confirm what the total truth is, but when you look at the differences between Lily and Barbie, especially in her first incarnations, it's impossible to not see the similarities between the two of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. However, it should be noted there are some slight differences between the two of them. So the first Barbie dolls were actually made out of vinyl instead of hard plastic. And they ended up deciding to go with a different hairstyle with Barbie having curly bangs rather than the wig cap. And they also distinctly decided to make Barbie have separate shoes and earrings that were not molded onto the doll, unlike Lily. There are also some slight differences in terms of, like, no shape and the eyes and the way that they're painted. Yeah, because it both has, like, the, the pencil eyebrows, the eyes going to the side, and, like, kind of the large forehead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, apart from those tiny differences that I've already listed, pretty much all of the earliest Barbie dolls were almost indistinguishable from the Build Lily dolls. Which, once Barbie ended up getting massively popular throughout the United States, you could imagine that becoming a problem as time went on. However, Barbie's own meteoric rise to fame is a story for another day. So, as time went on, Lewis Marx and Company was a corporation that came around at this time, who was another popular toy manufacturer throughout Europe, they ended up purchasing the rights to uh, the Build Lily dolls. And because of American patent laws, it wasn't a thing where neither Boothine, Build, or Lewis Marks and Company, none of them could pursue legal action throughout the United States. Mattel would go on to buy all of the patents and copyrights to the Build Lily doll so that using that name as a book title or a product name would not infringe on copyright laws. And... At that point, the Marx company tried to sue for patent infringement. However, that attempt ended up becoming largely unsuccessful. They stopped producing the Build Lily dolls at around 1964, while Barbie was ending up becoming the most popular toy in America. And that's where I think I'm going to end the story today. I could talk a little bit more about Boothine, who he did go on to make some other newspaper comic characters similar to Lily for like Bavarian newspapers. But a lot of those efforts ended up becoming kind of fruitless. 
I don't know. What are you thinking? How are you feeling, Emma? I don't know. I guess it kind of feels like she sort of like she kind of had her moment, but you know, I guess you can't really compete with the uh, American toy imperialist machine. So Barbie is who remains. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it is interesting when you consider some of the problems and some of the image stuff that Mattel has been trying to do to rehabilitate Barbie. It is interesting to see them having to really combat a lot of the historical origins that kind of made Barbie who she was. Yeah, I mean, Barbie was kind of a baddie, you know? Yeah. It, it's a thing where, uh, but especially when you consider, again, the some of the issues that Barbie has faced in terms of uh, criticisms of how they portray body issues and, like, self-image and the fact that the Barbie look has a lot of that baggage nowadays that I think a lot of people are kind of still trying to grapple with. When you think about it, where she started as this product for like, for the primarily the purpose of older men being able to get horny. I don't know. That paints all of those kind of changes in a very interesting picture, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, it's kind of like the whole concept of Barbie, a lot of like, and why it was kind of like an untapped market between then, like why a lot of like young girls would want to kind of like fantasize and putting themselves in the role of an adult mm-hmm. woman. I don't know how there's almost, there's almost this current kind of expectation for like girls to grow up faster yeah, than boys to some extent and how like, you know, you're kind of like taught to sort of like desire future adulthood. And in that sense, at least, at least Barbie does kind of like show like visions of adulthood that go beyond just like getting married and having kids. So, yeah, this is true. I, think I something to yeah, that. I, and again, I think I do believe those testaments when she talked about wanting to give her daughter a toy that she could be more than just a mom or a caregiver, and. I it is one of those things where I think part of the reason why Barbie has like kind of stayed so culturally relevant is that there's that malleability and I think that's even reflective in the different movies we've watched over the years where like whether she's a princess or a space captain or a surfer girl there's that element where that still intrinsic Barbiness is still, still there, for better or worse, I would say. Yeah. 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 I don't know. You got any other thoughts about Build Lily and all that kind of stuff? I'm I'm just hoping that she's living her best life. You know. I don't know about you. Looking at like the, these comic strips, Lily gives me the impression of being like one of those trust fund kids. Uh, she she lives she lives in downtown New York City, but her parents pay for her rent, so she uh, gets to work at an as an intern at a company. Or I'm feeling I want maybe maybe like some multi level marketing stuff going in there. Yeah. Have you ever considered being your own boss? Hey, I started my own company at twenty. Oh God, no! She's one of those people that's selling like a, a specific type of diet culture type of thing. Have you all considered going on the carnivore diet? Oh no! God, I yeah. only eat blueberries and peanut butter and the rinds of cantaloupe. Yep. But, yep, that's the story of uh, Build Lily. So this is a bit of a different episode than what we usually do. But like I said, I do kind of want to spend some time, like, just exploring some of the history of Barbie. And I hope that we can do more episodes that kind of, like, go into some of the stuff that has happened with the doll line over the years. Cause yeah, our girl Barbara Roberts, she, uh, she's gotten into some stuff over the years. Yeah. So if this is the sort of thing that you guys enjoy and... Again, this is something pretty different. We would really like to hear, like, the kind of... Your your all's thoughts on this. And at the very least, I do want to try and find me a copy of that Build Lily movie just to give that a watch. Cause... I don't know. I feel, like, I feel like it would be fun to watch, though. Oh, yeah. Definitely. The possibility of both finding a copy of the movie and finding one that's, like, translated would be kind of difficult. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll be surprised. But at least until next time, yeah, that's going to about do it for us here in the pink aisle so i think with all that said emma 
Thank you for joining me on this little historical journey. Where can people find more of you? Um, I'm at EmmaCorey9 on Twitter. Follow me if you want or don't. I don't care either way. Yeah. And then as for me, if you want to follow my stuff, you can follow me at Henry at Twitter, henrycathman.tumblr.com for all the stuff kind of just in one place. There's youtube.com slash henrycathman with all my videos. And everything that I didn't do on the internet is supported through kind donations at patreon.com slash henrycathman. However, if you can't stand being apart from the pink owl goodness that we got for you, consider giving us a follow at pink owl pod on Twitter. Maybe sending us a little email at pink pod at gmail.com. Or maybe, maybe put a, put a little letter in a bottle and then put it, put it in the river and I hope it makes its way to us. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to include like a little printed out picture of Bibble in order for it to work. That's the proper oh, incantation. Oh yeah. Like if someone can, can give us like, like a little like locket, like a, like a gold heart locket that's got like a picture of Bibble in it and just like send that to us. Mm. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah, indeed. I think that's going to about do it for us, Emma. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say if you could create like like a sexy pinup character, what would you create? Well, Emma, it's already been done. Wait, what? Mattel released an official Bibble doll back in 2008. Oh god, you're right. <laughs> Goodbye everybody. Oh dear.